Today we are beginning a new series on the book of Ephesians. For, for the, the last several years, actually, it's been on my heart to go through this series. And so during the study break when I was away, one of the things I did was really immerse myself in the book of Ephesians. It's an incredible book. It really is. It's an incredible book for, for longtime believers who need to know the depth of what we have in Christ. But it's also good for new believers to understand what has God done and how is God equipping us to live out faith in a dark world. See, tomorrow morning is something that's very unique in our culture, Some, something we don't experience very often. It's called a total solar eclipse. It's going to happen shortly before lunchtime tomorrow. And some of you already have your special glasses to watch it. And you know what's fascinating? There are parties, there are weddings planned for that moment of time, Uh, there's warnings about traffic concerns during the eclipse, A a lot of stuff going on, all in conjunction with this moment of the day when it becomes dark. We have a fascination with darkness. And the book of Ephesians tells us this, that you were once a people of darkness, but now you are children of the light. So live as children of light. And tomorrow you may experience the, the, the solar eclipse, it's not going to change your life. I want to tell you this, if you get into God's word and you listen to what God is saying, specifically in the book of Ephesians, it will change your life forever. And we're going to go through it kind of slowly. We're just going to go, we're not going to skip over stuff. We're going to hit everything as we go through the book. It may take us four months, it may take us eight months. I don't know. Some of you were here when we went through Matthew. It took us over a year, and yet some people said, you know, Pastor, that was one of my favorite series, was was that soaking in of God's word. And here's something you need to know about me, and I I know it's true of Pastor Sam and and really our elders and leaders of this church. This book speaks powerfully into our lives. And I know sometimes it seems like it's mysterious, it's difficult to understand, but the more you take the time to really listen to it and let it soak into you, you will find it changing your life. It really does. It, It excites me when I see what God is doing. And I learn more about the Bible now when I read it than I did when I first started, but I had to get started somewhere. And so if if you have a Bible, we encourage you to follow along, highlight things, underline things, read the book of Ephesians several times during the course of this study. On on, On your bulletin is a list of scriptures that we'll cover in the sermon today, but we won't go into any of them in great detail, but go back through those scriptures, read them in your morning quiet times. I want you to have an Ephesian immersion over the next several months. Let it soak into you because I guarantee you it will change your life. It will equip you to live out a Christ-filled life in this dark world. If you don't have a hardcover Bible like this, you can always pull it up on your phone. If you don't have a a phone app, there there are many great Bible apps. And uh, in the back of this room, there's a tall, slender cabinet that has Bibles in back. And if you don't own a Bible... Go back there and grab one of those Bibles, follow along in the book of Ephesians with us, and if you promise to read it, we'll let you take it home and keep it. Okay? That's a good deal, right? So we're going to dive into the study today, but uh, we're actually going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to actually look at a story of the Ephesian people that this book is written to. In fact, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at the, the people and what they came out of because it's so critical to understand what they were dealing with to understand Ephesians. We're going to look at a group of men who actually were rebaptized. I was rebaptized. I, I was baptized as a little infant in the Methodist church. Don't remember it. There were no pictures to show that it happened, but um, my parents had the paper that said it happened, and they told me it happened, but it never changed my life. And I was rebaptized when I was 19 because of my personal faith and decision to follow Jesus Christ. 
And there are some of you today who, who, who will feel that that's what I need to do. And so at the close of this service, we're going to invite you to come forward because today is something we do uh, maybe every couple years, just a special day for spontaneous baptisms. Where you can come forward, we will baptize you today. Uh, we will take you back there. And at the close of this service, we're going to have possibly a dozen, maybe two dozen baptisms. I don't know. Depends how God moves in this service. But we will baptize today. We had five people in our first service who were baptized. So I want us to pray, and then we're going to jump into Acts chapter 19, all right? So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. May you speak to us today, Lord. May you move among us with power. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. May your Holy Spirit just penetrate us today, Father. We believe that you are here, and we want to hear your voice and say yes to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ephesians, by the way, is one of the prison epistles. It's It's one of four books or letters of the Bible Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. And he was able to write letters, send them to some of his companions. They would then take it to these area churches. So the letter to the Ephesians was written there, Philippians, Colossians, and then a a letter to an individual named Philemon. They're all called the, the prison epistles because they came out of Paul's experience in prison. Now, Paul had a number of missionary journeys, three to be exact, and visited all kinds of cities during those journeys. And one of those cities that he loved to go to was Ephesus. We find he first visited Ephesus in um, Acts chapter 18. He brought along with them a couple named um, Aquila and Priscilla. And then he promised the people that he would come back if it was the Lord's will. And it was the Lord's will. He did come back. And when he came back, he actually spent three years in Ephesus, more time than he spent with any other city. Now, Ephesus was a, was a strategic city in that time period. It was located on the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea coast. There, it was one of the four or five largest cities in existence at that time. It was a harbor town, probably a quarter million in population. People traveled there for business, but they also traveled there because of one of its unique features, the temple of the goddess Artemis, or some of your Bibles will say Diana. This was a phenomenal thing. We'll talk more about it in the next few weeks. But, but people would come. It was almost like Disneyland. Whole industries revolved around this worship of this goddess, Artemis. And so Paul comes to these people. And in Acts chapter 19, we find him encountering a group of 12 individuals. And that's where we're going to begin our story today. Acts chapter 19. It says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. What I want to focus on this morning is something very simple, just two questions. Two questions that Paul asked those people. The first was this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their response, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. How in the world they had never even heard of the Holy Spirit baffles me because if they were Jewish, surely they had heard of the Old Testament promises that God one day would pour out his Spirit on all people that his spirit would, would raise these dead bones to life and that God would come in and dwell and, and give their hearts of stone, hearts of flesh. And if they were Jewish, they would have known that. They would have heard that for years. So they were probably Gentiles. But even if they were Gentiles, 
this visit that Paul made to Ephesus was 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 20 years went by. Somehow they were either baptized by John the Baptist or they were baptized by one of John the Baptist's disciples. But they never knew the full story. John the Baptist baptized people saying, prepare the way of the Lord. The Messiah is coming. And people in repentance were baptized in anticipation that Jesus was coming. But for some reason, they never got the rest of the story. That the news hadn't reached them, it seems like. They didn't know that Jesus actually came, died, was buried, raised from the dead, and then sent his Holy Spirit. This is all kind of new news to them. And it's not surprising in one sense because they didn't have internet, TV, radio, newspapers. Their communication systems were very primitive. Most of the time it was person to person. But what intrigues me is the fact that Paul's very first question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, we don't ask that question of people when we meet them. Typically, that's not a question we ask, but for Paul, it was critical. And we'll find out more as we get into Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is a very critical part of our our Christian journey. Paul, it seems, realizes they don't look like people who have the Holy Spirit. They're not acting like people who have the Holy Spirit. It should be evident in a believer's life. That's what Paul's point is. It should be evident, and it's not, so I wonder if he's really there. John Piper, a pastor and teacher, says in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is not a silent influence, but an experienced power. You should know if the Holy Spirit is in you. There should be evidence of it, a manifestation of it in in some way. In fact, we find out in this story that he evidenced himself in this ability to speak in other languages and to prophesy because they didn't know what the Holy Spirit even did, how he works in people's lives. Now, we don't have time to go into this in a lot of detail, but if you have version. Any of you have version on your phone that you follow? There actually is an attachment, and, and it will be put on our website this week, of, of nine different kind of tests that show the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I just want to share with you just a, just a few of those really quickly. One of those is this confirmation in our hearts, that, uh, the assurance that we have a relationship with the Father. Listen to the book of Romans. It says this way, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit lives in you. There should be this sense of assurance within your own heart that says, I know I belong to him. I know I'm one of his children. That should, that should be part of our walk. We should also see increasing Christ-likeness in our character. The fruit of the Spirit, it's called. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are called fruit, which means outgrowths of the Spirit living in our lives. If you find yourself growing in those characteristics, it's, it's, it's very probable the Holy Spirit's living you. If you're not, then I would say maybe the Holy Spirit isn't in you. And then here's one more. Being directed by the Spirit. In other words, you sense the Spirit's leading your life, some prompting you. You hear His voice through God's Word, and then you're going in that direction. It says in the book of Romans again, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. There's other ones. Operating in the gifts of the Spirit. God's word coming alive to you in, in, in greater clarity. And all these things are evidences that the Spirit is working in our lives. There ought to be evidence, according to Paul. And why? Because the Holy Spirit is indispensable for the Christian life. He's, he's indispensable. You can buy cars today that have add-on features. You can get navigational systems. You can get a certain kind of braking system. You can get all kinds of add-on features but I want to tell you this. Some people think the Holy Spirit is an add-on. 
That's why a lot of churches don't even talk about the Holy Spirit. If you need him, he's there, but you don't really need him. All you need is Jesus. And I want to tell you, you need more than just Jesus. You need Jesus' spirit living inside of us. He's indispensable. He is part of the package of being a Christian. In fact, the scripture says that you cannot be a Christian without it. Listen to to this verse from Romans 8, verse 9. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. He, He has to be dwelling within us. That's what we mean when we say Christ lives in me. It's the spirit of Christ that lives in me. And if he's not there, then, then, then I may have some mental understanding. I, may, I may, might be a disciple by my practices, but I'm truly not a Christian because I don't have Christ living in me. You have to have him because it's too hard to live the Christian life on your own. It's not merely looking at the Bible, seeing what it says, and then saying, I'm going to conform my life to that. It has to be this inner working of God changing your desires, changing your heart, changing your character, equipping you for a spiritual battle that you're fighting every single day. You have to have the Holy Spirit living within you. We'll talk more about that in Ephesians 1 where where it says, know what God has done for you. I mean, that's where it all starts. We've got to understand this whole idea of it all begins with what God has done for us. God the Father sent his one and only son. God the Father chose us from before time began. He sent his one and only son who, who modeled what it was like to follow God but gave his life as a sacrifice for us. And then he gave his spirit to seal us and come and dwell within us to give us the assurance of our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity is working together in our salvation. It's indispensable. And the Holy Spirit is what is promised in the gospel message. It is a promise in the gospel message. In Acts chapter 2, when the church first began, it was the day of Pentecost, God pours out his Spirit on his disciples. They stand up and they start speaking in languages of the people and then Peter rises up and he goes in this incredible sermon in Acts chapter 2. You can read about it in Acts 2, but it's powerful. He says this this man Jesus went around doing miracles and God had anointed him and yet you with the help of wicked men nailed him to a cross and yet God saw that he did not lay in the grave. He raised him from the dead and what you see and hear now, this evidence of the Holy Spirit is because he has sent his spirit out upon us. And then it says, listen to Acts chapter two, verses 37 to 39. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They felt convicted. They said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise, this promise is for you and your children. And for those who are far off, speaking of Gentiles who always were far off, speaking of people who were far, far from God, it's for them too, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So notice this. These people are convicted, and they're feeling this guilt, like, man, we nailed Jesus to the cross. He really was God's son. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? And you would think Peter would say, well, then believe. They say, we do believe. What do we do to show we believe? He says, repent, which means turn from sin, and be baptized. Baptism is the, is the, out, is the, is the outward expression of the repentance of the heart. I am being surrendered to him. I am giving myself fully to him. I am turning a life away from sin. And there's this picture here of of cleansing of forgiveness and the filling of the Spirit. It's it's as if God says, let me come in and clean out the house, and then I'm going to move in. That's the picture there that's given to us in the book of Acts. This is the promise that God gives for you and your children, for all those who are far off. Now, I've had pastors argue in this passage saying, no, no, what it's saying there is, is because you're saved, you should repent and be baptized. But that doesn't even make sense. Why should you repent if you're already saved? Why should you repent? 
It's tying repentance and baptism, saying one's an inward, inward decision, the other's an outward expression of the very same thing. Surrender your lives to God. And here's what he's going to do. He'll forgive you and he'll fill you. That's his promise. We find that again in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. When you believe, you are marked in him with a seal, the promise, Holy Spirit. It is a promise that he gives us. When? When we believe. And when our, when our faith is expressed in response to the gospel. So that's the first question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit's so important. And when they say, no, we, we didn't, Paul says, then what baptism did you receive? Why did he bring that up? Why did, why did he bring up what baptism did you receive? Because the assumption is that they were baptized in some manner because followers or disciples were always baptized. It goes back even before the time of Christ, hundreds of years before Jesus came. If someone was a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, Here's what they did. They did three things. One is they offered a sacrifice. Two is if you're a male, you were circumcised. You can talk to your parents about that if you don't know what that is, okay? (laughs) And three, they stripped down to nothing and were fully immersed in a pool of water. Head to toe, everything covered. Symbol there was you you are making a break with your past and you're entering into a new chapter of your life. You're no longer a Gentile. You're accepted now as a Jew. So John the Baptist comes along. And what is he doing? He says, there's a new, there's a new era coming. The Messiah is on his way. Repent. Prepare your hearts for him. What did people do? They walked in the Jordan River. They were baptized. It marked a, a new beginning of their life. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist. What did it mark? It was the initiation of a new chapter of his life. Now, in Jesus' case, he didn't need forgiveness, but it did mark the beginning. And my point is, it always marks a beginning of a journey, a beginning of a new chapter of life. And so, it's a starting point. Baptism is a starting point, really on any path of discipleship, but particularly discipleship with Jesus. That's why in the Great Commission, before Jesus left this earth, he said this. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, and here's what you do, two things baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. He separates baptism from all the other teachings of things we should obey. Why? Because this is the start of it. This is the entry point into life of discipleship. It's a one-time event. The rest of your life, you're going to learn what it means to love your neighbor, how to pray, uh, how to to serve, how to give, all the different things that we're commanded to learn to do. We're going to learn those the rest of the life until the day we die. But this event, this isn't one of those events. This is the beginning. This is the start of the road to discipleship. Now, I think it's really interesting that Paul uses a phrase here, what baptism did you receive? What he says is that it's a gift, not a work. The baptism is a gift, not a work. And the reason that's important is because many people say, well, you know what? You don't need to be baptized because it's a work, and we don't believe that you're saved by works. I don't believe you're saved by works either. Not at all. A work is something you do that gets a wage. You do something, you earn something, you can then present it to your employer and say, I put in these hours, I get this wage. That's a work. And if there was some way to say, God, I did this, this, and this, therefore you owe me this, then it would be a work. But just because I do something doesn't make it a work. Sometimes you do something to receive a gift, a gift that is free. Uh, On Fridays, Come and Go has free Fridays. And, and every Friday morning, I get up and I go, oh, what's free today? And I pull up my Come and Go app and I look. And this past Friday, it was, 
It was this little pack of Philadelphia cream cheese and bagel chips. And I said, we're going to go get that. It's got in my car. My wife and I, or the grandson, drove over to come and go. We go in and pick the item off the shelf, walk over to the clerk's counter, show them the barcode on our phone. They scan it, and they say, have a nice day. And it's free. Did I do something? Yeah, I did. I got in the car. I drove over. I went in the store. I picked this out. I presented it. Did any of those earn the, the, the item? No. They were things I did to receive the gift. So don't confuse the two. There are things we do to receive a gift. Those aren't works. We don't get anything because we do those things. We just do those things to receive what's been offered. Here's the truth. You, you, can't, you can't be saved because you're baptized. And you're not saved because you confess Christ. You're not saved because you repent. And I would even say you're not saved because you believe in Jesus. You're saved because of God's grace. It says in Ephesians 2, real clearly, for it is by grace you are saved. Through faith. But it is by grace. Grace means God gives it. And all those others are ways that we respond to receive it. So he says, what, what did you receive? It's a gift. Somehow through this, there's two questions. One about the Holy Spirit, one about baptism. Seems like Paul's trying to say there's some kind of connection between the two. There must be some connection between the two. And I think here's the connection. That, that when, from God's perspective, when someone is baptized, it has a powerful picture of what God is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. We know there's no magic in the water. It's just tap water. We know the power is in the cross and the blood of Christ. But just like water washes away sin, the blood of Christ washes our sins. And just like someone is raised from the water, it's symbolic of of even a new birth, of a a resurrection, of saying, I'm now beginning a new way of life. It 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 is representative of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. When Paul wrote to a young pastor named Titus, he said this, Titus chapter three, he, meaning God, saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, okay? Get this straight. He saves us because of what he did through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which he poured out so graciously on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He ties those two together. And by the way, in the Greek language, the, the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit are joined together by a little preposition called chi or and, And it actually links those two together as one event. Both of those are accomplished by the same subject, the Holy Spirit. The the washing and the renewal are both accomplished by the one agent, the Holy Spirit. So this raises the question that I'm sure some of you might be asking. Pastor, are you saying that someone can't have the Holy Spirit if they're not baptized? No, I'm not saying that. In fact, we have have evidence in the New Testament of, of Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10 who heard the word of God preached by Peter, and while they were listening to the message and saying, I believe that, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Peter was astonished, saying, these people got the same Holy Spirit that that we got. And so he told them, you know what? You guys are part of us. You need to be baptized right now. So they're all baptized. And see that you'll always find the book of Acts that all these things, sometimes the timing may be a little different, but they're all kind of wrapped up in one event. It reminds me of a wedding. I had the privilege last weekend of doing one of the most memorable weddings I've ever been a part of. And it was in Larkspur. It was an outdoor wedding. And rain was in the forecast. And so when the wedding began to start, 
it hadn't rained all day, we said, look like, look like we're in the good because this is what I'm looking at. There's a bride and the, and the, and the father of the bride at the uh, top of the hill. They're coming down this hill toward, toward me and toward the groom and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen are all lined up. We're looking that way. It doesn't look like a beautiful day. White fluffy clouds, blue sky. What I didn't realize was how quickly the weather behind us was moving in because here's what everyone else saw. <laughs> I'm yakking away about the sermon and the marriage and all this. My wife's going, hurry up, we're going to get struck by lightning. (laughs) I'm oblivious to her the entire time until there comes a moment when the bride and groom are going to nail shut a wine box. And I step aside and look up and I go, oh my goodness. (laughs) We have got to wrap this thing up really quickly. And so we did and then everyone went running up the hill. You know, people, people commented on this. I put this on Facebook, and they said things like, uh, their love is electric. <laughs> or just tells me that storms are coming in their marriage. You know, I, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a downer. Uh, but it just reminds me of, of, of the darkness involved all around us sometimes and the spiritual battle that we're in. But back to the wedding analogy. You know, there's so many beautiful parts of a wedding, And you know, I can refer to a number of different parts of the wedding and everyone knows it all refers to the same event. I can say, remember the day that you shared your vows? Remember the day that your dad walked you down the aisle? Remember the day that you exchanged rings? Remember the day that I pronounced you husband and wife? I can say any of those things. They all know it's the same event. We can pick a part of the wedding and say, at what moment were they actually married? Was it when they kissed? Was it when you pronounced them? Was it when they put the rings on? Do you know in our state that they actually are not even married until I sign their wedding license? So what moment are they actually married in God's eyes? I don't know. I just know this is one grand event. And I look at the rings in particular and say, you know what, that reminds me so much of, of what baptism is. But baptism by itself means nothing. But what it symbolizes is the commitment of an individual who's saying, I do to Jesus. Who says yes to his love. And you can look back over years of time and say, I remember. I remember that day when I got my ring. I remember that day when I got baptized. The baptism didn't save you. It was the commitment that brought you into relationship with Christ. But isn't it a beautiful symbol? You know, this this ring is a beautiful symbol. It's just metal. Actually, this ring. (laughs) That's kind of a cheap ring. This is the expensive ring. This is the ring. It reminds me of the preciousness of the vows we share. And I always look at this ring and remember that, you know, someone committed themselves to me. There's a woman that entered into a covenant with me till death would separate us. You know when you're baptized that two lives become one? If it's true that God says, my spirit will be given to you, I promise. Two become one. We start a new journey in our lives.